1: Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers. Who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 217. I am your humble host, Thomas Roseland Viborg Thun. And tonight, we stay in South America. We keep ourselves in or close by the Andes mountain range, as we track La Bestia, The Beast. Luis Garavito, and his monstrous crimes. Notice. This episode contains graphic descriptions of brutal and extreme violence against children. Consider yourself warned. This episode, like all other sagas told by me, would not be possible without my loyal Patreones. They are... Elizabeth, Russell, Lisa, Kathy, James, Cody, Kylie, Robert, Val, Madeline, Craig, Emily, the Duggletons, Jonathan, Jennifer, Lunavar, Roy, Cheryl, Richard, Brad, Laurie, Manuel, Haley, James, and Jeff. You are truly the backbone of the Serial Killer podcast, and without you, there would be no show. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK producers club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. All TSK episodes will be available one hundred percent ad-free to my TSK producers club on Patreon.com/slash The Serial Killer Podcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles. I promise, and of course. If you wish to donate $15 a month, that’s only750 per episode, you are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don’t miss out and join now. Imagine if you will, dear listen a young, slender boy standing on a dusty street corner in the hot Colombian sun. The boy is poor, and his clothes are ragged and filthy. But underneath the grime is a very beautiful child with soft features, large eyes, and a feminine mouth. A very ordinary-looking man comes by and offers the child a job and some candy. The boy, very hungry and very desperate, is grateful for the attention and the prospect of making some money. The sun is glaring down at the pair, and the man, who introduces himself as a priest, suggests they go somewhere with a shade. He knows just the spot. The man smells of alcohol. THE BOY IS USED TO THE SMELL FROM ALL THE ADULTS IN HIS LIFE, BUT THE SUPPOSED PRIEST SEEMS VERY FRIENDLY, AND THE BOY WILLINGLY FOLLOWS. SOON THEY ARE OUT OF VIEW FROM PRYING EYES IN THE COUNTRYSIDE. ONLY THE PRIEST, WHOSE REAL NAME IS Luis GARAVITO, KNOWS THAT ONLY A FEW METERS AWAY LIES A MASS GRAVE OF YOUNG CHILDREN HE HAS PERSONALLY MURDERED. He gets the child to talk candidly about his life, especially the parts that are difficult and painful. After a while, La Bestia is bored of listening to the child and attacks. Brandishing a menacing knife, he binds the child securely with rope he brought with him. After the child is tied up, he cuts away the boy's clothes so that he lies completely naked under the sun smiling. The serial killer's mask falls away, and he quickly masturbates over the now crying boy. According to Garavito, he made a quote-unquote pact with the devil, and satanic rituals were also incorporated. The boy and others were apparent blood sacrifices. Temporarily sated from masturbating, Garavito then takes his time with the child. He rolls the boy over and anally rapes him for a while. Then he stabs a screwdriver repeatedly deep into the victim's buttocks. There's blood everywhere, but Caravito keeps going. He takes a small knife and flays off pieces of the boy's buttocks skin. The pain for the boy is extreme and unimaginable. When you would think Garavito could not be any more sadistic, the torture just increases. He turns the boy onto his back again and, with a knife, slices open his stomach. Then he rapes the boy from the front so brutally that intestines pour out of the child. But La Bestia is not done. He pulls out and proceeds to slice off the child's testicles and penis. The boy passes out, but Garavito repeatedly brings him back, too. As the child is howling and screaming in utter agony and terror, the beast jams the genitals into the boy's mouth, using the sexual organs as a gag. Garavito howls in delight and starts to savagely stab the boy in the chest, neck, and face. When there is no more than a weak death rattle coming from the bloody body before him, Garavito carefully slices off the boy's head using his knife. The beast, a.k.a. the priest, covered in blood, takes the head and sits down under a small tree nearby. There he watches the sunset with the head in his lap, slowly bringing himself back to full erection, using the head for oral sex. He then rapes the headless corpse over and over again until he cannot climax anymore. Only then does La Bestia feel a tinge of guilt, and he buries the boy with the other victims nearby. Okay, dear listener, that was probably the worst description of murder ever described on this podcast. As a father to two boys, It was horrible researching Garavito's modus operandi, as what you just heard was, and writing it up in all its terrible detail. Understand that he did not do this two or three times, but hundreds. As I have stated several times on this podcast, it is important to understand the true extent of serial killers' brutality. To grasp the facts of how extreme the suffering they inflict upon innocent victims really are. And Garavito was, perhaps, along with a select few others, the worst serial killer ever to walk the earth. Now, on to how he was finally caught. Forensic scientists were by now supplied with evidence such as specific nylon threads, alcohol bottles, and a particular methodology that convinced police that the murders were not the work of a team or organization, that they were dealing with one man, a sexual sadist who single-handedly raped and murdered hundreds of Columbia's children. The Colombian authorities knew that they needed all the help they could get with this case. Colombia had little to no experience managing such cases, so they reached out to their counterparts in the FBI, asking for files on cases similar to the ones they were now investigating. It was by then February 1999, and yet another mass grave had been unearthed, this time in Palmyra, just sixty kilometers south of Nacaderos. Carlos Herrera joined the task force. Herrera obtained over thirteen pieces of evidence from this crime scene, one of which was a pair of shoes that would later help investigators identify an important physical characteristic of the murderer. The shoes showed extreme wear towards the ends of the soles indicating that the shoes were too big for their wearer. Furthermore, the heel of one shoe was nearly worn through, which Herrera concluded indicated a limp or a rotating gait from some sort of injury. The shoes also helped investigators predict the man's height. He would have to be somewhere between 163 and 167 centimeters tall. Duran's team decided that if they were to unmask this murderer, they would have to find a way to enter the world he lived in. A handful of Colombia's top detectives went undercover in the country's homeless populace. Each in an area the murderer was most likely to target again. The theoretical noose around Garavito's neck tightened further. Finally, the authorities were one step closer. The 1999 crime scene was largely what broke this case wide open. Herrera pieced together the remnants from the crime scene evidence to create a criminal profile that the murderer would fit into. These tiny little pieces of information would add up to a very specific personality and physical body type, helping the authorities to create a narrow suspect pool. A pair of charred glasses and a specific brand of alcohol were also recovered from the crime scene. The charring was something that none of the tests could account for, but the lenses did reveal a condition usually specific to two age groups 40 to 45 or 55 to 60. The glasses were also bent at an awkward angle that indicated the wearer probably had widely separated ears. Aside from age range, hate, a preference for a particular brand of alcohol, and two possible distinguishing characteristics, there was still next to no physical evidence that would identify La Bestia. As such, the investigators began to focus on behavior profiling. The investigators suspected that somehow he was blending in with the crowds of Columbia without raising suspicion. They decided to look into the victim profile, realizing that, given the suspect's probable age, he could have been active much longer than anyone realized, and that would mean there might be more cases, many more, than they initially thought. The authorities pulled out over ten years of crime records and allocated roughly 5,000 cases to the probable suspect pool. Based on the already known parameters, they removed all with female victims and were left with over 1,500 male perpetrators. They then excluded suspects based on hate and age, and then narrowed the list further by focusing on those who were active in the areas of already known crime scenes. The final list consisted of 25 names. Durand's icy determination to capture Garavito had earned him the name the murderous shadow. He had become so invested in the case that he flew to Bogota to ascertain more information on the case files there. It was there that Doran came across another strong lead. In 1996, there were reports of yet another child who went missing. Renald Delgado was a twelve-year-old boy from the region of Tunja, bordering the north of Bogota. Delgado's case closely matched that of the current victim-pool. Only, unlike the others, Delgado's case included a suspect. A shopkeeper had reported that the boy had last been seen in the company of a man who was not from the region. That man had been identified and brought in for questioning, only to be released due to a lack of concrete evidence. This man's name, was Luis Alfredo Garavito, a name that appeared on the list of twenty-five suspects that the investigators had compiled. Duran knew immediately that this was no coincidence. A careful examination of the file revealed other connections. For example, Garavito's birthplace was registered as Genova, the place where Doran's original three cases had occurred. Furthermore his place of residence as per his written statement was Trujillo the location of yet another masquerade
2: If you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers For full, important safety information, visit juvederm.com.
0: Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs?
1: Help.com/serialkiller. The official investigation, however, had taken a different turn. A suspect had been identified in Paraira, one with a limp and in the same age range, and he was selling honey from the same bottles as those found at the crime scene. His name was Pedro Pachuga. In October nineteen ninety-seven two young boys disappeared from a bus station in Pereira, and Pachuga was a top suspect. The boys were later discovered dead. Just days later, another young boy identified Pachuga as an attempted rapist. Sure of their target, the investigators scoured the streets for the man they thought was responsible for the hundreds of bodies thrown across Colombia. Within weeks, the investigators caught and arrested Pedro Pachuga. There was only one catch. Pachuga insisted he was innocent. During his incarceration, Pachuga continued to plead his innocence, which in itself was not unusual, but within weeks the murderer had struck again, this time in Bogota. Four boys murdered with the exact same modus of Brandeis. It became clear that the prosecutors had indeed apprehended the wrong man. The authorities were shaken. The body count was now well past a hundred, and rising. They knew that they needed to take more care in terms of the recovery of evidence, as they could not afford any more mistakes. The Colombian investigation became a meld of every relevant foreign technique they could reasonably replicate, from the British techniques of evidence recovery with color-coded crime scenes, to the Russian and American techniques of forensic facial reconstruction. Soon, four of the victims had been identified by the families. This was another crucial step in the ongoing investigation. Meanwhile, Duran used a case file on Delgado to track down the address left behind by Luis Garavito and in so doing found Esther Garavito Cubillos, a sister of Luis Garavito. Esther was found to have a bag of Garavito's personal items. The bag contained documents, travel mementos, and a collection of journals that revealed intimate details about Garavito's childhood and later life. Durand's team carefully combed through the documents and found a receipt of money wired to a woman in Pereira, where documents revealed he had been implicated as part of the homicide of a minor by a judicial body in that area. The investigators proceeded to track down the location of the woman, and much to their own surprise they found yet another suitcase of documents, these dating from 1994, to 1997, in her care. The bag contained synthetic fibres, razors, and lubricants, all of which were consistent with what had been uncovered in previous crime scenes. The evidence in Palmyra pointed to one further thing. The suspect in question had been burned. Based on the evidence and the crime scene at Palmyra, the investigators came to the conclusion that the suspect would have been wounded and heavily burned as he left in an attempt to distance himself from his latest victim. A man, matching his description, allegedly sought help at a pharmacy in Pereira, only to disappear right after. This provided yet another physical clue to the suspect's profile. He would have had severe burns along the left side of his body. By the 22nd of April, 1999, the search for Ivan Sobugal had intensified. At 11.15 that evening, the police received a call for help from a junkyard employee reporting a boy who claimed to have escaped an attempted rapist. The police responded immediately and, along with Ivan's mother, went to retrieve the boy. She identified the boy instantly. Ivan had survived. The boy provided a description, and then explained how a homeless man had passed by as the predator attempted to assault him, and how that momentary distraction had allowed Ivan to run away. The predator had chased after him and the homeless man, but, after being spotted by a young woman as they ran, he had backed off. The police were prepared to accept the win they had been handed by recovering Ivan Sabugal, and were driving him and his mother back to the police station when the unexpected happened. Right there, outside their window, walking along the highway, was a man Ivan identified as his assailant. The man identified himself as Bonifacio Moreno Liscado. That name was not on the list of suspects, but, with young Ivan's positive identification, the police brought him in for questioning. Bonifacio's arrest was strange, to say the least. The man did not struggle or protest in any way. He was unnervingly calm, as he persistently claimed that he was not the man the police were looking for. Nothing he said or did would make anyone think that this was a man who had murdered hundreds of children across the Colombian countryside. Once they reached the police station, Prosecutor Aya visited the suspect in custody and straight away noticed the physical similarities between Bonifacio and Luis Alfredo Garavito. He also noticed something the other officers had not. On each of the documents that the detainee had signed as Bonifacio, his signature varied. Aya took his suspicions and a photograph of Bonifacio to a meeting being held with prosecutors from all over the country regarding the murders. It was here that Aya showed Duran and his team the photograph of the man they had in custody. Duran and his team identified him immediately. The man in the picture was Luis Alfredo Garavito. Finally, all the puzzle pieces all fell into place. The scourge of Colombia was finally behind bars. By the end of this final meeting, authorities were left with little doubt that the man in custody was indeed Luis Alfredo Garavito. He was 42 years old and 167 centimeters tall. He wore glasses and had scars and burns along the left side of his body. He was born in Genova and raised in a dysfunctional family and had suffered abuse at the hands of familial figures before the age of 16. Everything about him fit the suspect profile they were looking for. Unfortunately, everything was also completely circumstantial, meaning that without Garavito's confession the Colombian authorities could prove little or nothing in a court of law, or at least not enough to build a solid case. The authorities desperately needed to establish concrete links between the crime scene evidence and Garavito himself. Once again the investigators started to hunt for evidence to link Garavito to the crimes, Detective Duran, who had now been studying Garavito's profile for years, suggested that there was a possibility that there were more mementos of the victims that Garavito would have saved over the years. They just needed to figure out where they were. It was with this aim in mind that the investigators hunted down Mrs. Umbar Toro, one of Garavito's best friends, and coaxed her into visiting Garavito in jail. The investigators were hoping that Garavito's need to forge a connection would make him open up to his old friend. Sure enough, Garavito confessed to Ambar Toro that there was indeed another bag of documents, which he had left with another inmate's wife. The contents of this final bag were even more incriminating than those of the first two. The bag contained regional newspaper clippings, paper documents, and even pictures of some of the victims. The bag also contained paper with weird markings on it. It was later discovered that the markings were a personal tally of his victims. Despite all of the evidence, Caravito still refused to confess, and the investigators realized that it was unlikely he ever would. Without a confession, The prosecutors would need an airtight case if they wanted to put Garavito behind bars. Nothing could be left to chance. It was clear that now was the time to establish a concrete link between the evidence collected and Garavito himself. First and foremost, the prosecution would need to establish a DNA link between Garavito and the DNA recovered from the crime scenes. Then there was the matter of the glasses that had been recovered. They needed to be able to determine Garavito's eye condition without tipping him off and thereby giving him the chance to lie about it. To avoid any disruption on Garavito's part, the entire prison was subjected to an eye exam, and it was during this exam that Garavito's cell was searched for traces of DNA to run against the crime scene samples obtained of the liquor bottles and the bodies. The prescription for the charred glasses came back as a match, and yet the prosecution still did not think they had enough evidence to seal his fate. The Colombian authorities decided to use Link, a Dutch software that cross references events, coincidences, and probabilities. They input the software with hotel reports, witness testimonies, and evidence. Link's report placed Garavito at every single crime scene location at the time of the event, stacking huge weight behind the prosecution's case, that Caravito was the only possible perpetrator. They decided that with this software they had enough to secure a conviction, but as a final attempt to make the case as airtight as possible, they decided it was time to take another shot at Luis Caravito himself. Garavito went through an eight-hour interrogation, with no crack in his demeanor. Garavito remained calm and stable, maintaining the entire time that not only was he innocent, but that all the evidence and witness testimony merely pointed to a flawed investigation. At this point, Lili Naranjo, the head of Garavito's investigation, decided to end the interrogation recognizing that Garavito was far too composed to crack under the pressure they were applying. They knew that they needed a different approach if they were going to destabilize him enough to get a confession. They were going to need someone who knew Garavito better than Garavito himself. Prosecutor Narahno authorized a private meeting between Garavito and Detective Duran, the only man who knew the cases well enough to go toe-to-toe with Caravito. What followed would go down forever in the history books as the end of Louis Garavito. Doran decided to approach the only part of Caravito that was not capable of staying detached, namely his fantasy realm. In order to do so, he verbally recounted every one of the murders in intricate detail. He carefully crafted the monologue. Taking Garavito back to each of the fantasies he ached to relive. But the fantasies were not as Garavito remembered them. Duran used explicit detail to build such a vivid mental image of the horrors that Garavito had inflicted that after eighteen hours, Luis Alfredo Garavito, the world's deadliest serial killer, perhaps, cried out for Detective Duran to stop. Duran held the murderer in his arms as Garavito, now sobbing, confessed to his crimes by pointing to pictures and explaining in detail what he had done to each of the children and how he had done it. Garavito defended himself by claiming that he had been possessed by evil spirits before each of the kills, theories he attempted to support by referencing his journals. Each of his journals was colour coded blue or red. The blue ones, which he claimed were his own, consisted of Bible verses and other pure thoughts. The red ones contained detailed descriptions of his kills. In December, Garavito was finally tried and convicted on two counts. The first was for a murder in Tunhach, the central province of Boyacá, where fourteen-year-old Silvino Rodríguez dismembered and tortured body had been discovered in June 1996. The second count was for the attempted rape of Ivan Sabogal, the 12-year-old boy from Western Via Vicencio, on account of whom he was finally apprehended in April 1999. Caravito had in fact confessed to the murders of over 190 young boys although experts believe the actual total to be closer to three hundred. A lack of conclusive evidence, however, prevented Garavito's conviction on the other counts. The death penalty does not exist in the Colombian legal system, and they had long ago declared that the longest a man could be imprisoned was sixty years. Based on these two counts, Garavito was given this maximum sentence. However, things changed soon after. In 2000, when the Colombian Penal Code underwent modification, now stating that no individual can be imprisoned for more than forty years. Caravito had been described as a model prisoner. He has been studying through his incarceration and has issued a public apology to the people of Colombia. Caravito served his sentence in a Maximum security prison in Par in the department of El Cesar, in Colombia. He was held separately from all other prisoners because it was feared that he would be killed immediately if he went into the general population. He could have become eligible for parole in twenty twenty three when he had served three fifths of his sentence. In twenty twenty one, a judge blocked a request to release Garabito early for good behavior on grounds that he had not paid his fines to his victims' families. Garavito remained hopeful, having expressed to Colombian Senator Carlos Moreno de Caro apparent plans to enter Colombian Congress, enter the ministry as a Pentecostal pastor and marry a woman in rejection of his self-admitted homosexuality, in the hopes that he would be able to help abused children upon his release. Garavito suffered from severe eye cancer and leukemia, which left him blind, weak, and fatigued, requiring daily blood transfusions. He spent most of his time making bracelets, earrings, and necklaces in the medical unit of Valle de Par's prison. Psychiatrists diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder. In other words. Caravito was diagnosed as being a psychopath. Caravito died at a hospital in Via du Par on the 12th of October, 2023, at the age of 66.
0: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made ByHeart a better formula for formula. Learn more at ByHeart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: And with that, we come to the end of this short series covering La Bestia, The Beast, Luis Garavito. Next episode will feature a fresh serial killer expose, so as they say in the land of radio. Stay tuned.